You are listening to Radio Maria Canada. We now present the Health Hub, hosted by Kathy Biasi. everyone and welcome to the Health Hub. I'm your host Kathy Biasse and along with our producer Alex Diaz, we would like to welcome you to our show today. Good morning, Alex. Good morning, Kathy. How are you? I'm well. How are you doing? I'm keeping well. That's good. Yes. Keeping well and laughing hard. Yeah, we were, we were definitely having a little <laughs> bit of fun before the show today. Yeah, a little too close to showtime, yeah, I think. Yeah, I, I was uh, running around because <laughs> we have a couple of uh, programs on the Italian side of our station oh. running at the same time. So it's a bit of a crazy morning, but it's all part of what we do here at Radio Maria and bringing the message to our listeners, and we do our best. We do our best, and live show is always, you know, you're on your toes all the time, so we exactly. just, yeah, as soon as the music came on, we put it on our serious faces, and we're good to go, right? Yes, there of course. Go. Today's show is live. Our number is 416-245-1534. You can reach us on all of our social media sites, which are Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at the Health Hub RMC. And you can email us at thh at radiomaria.ca. We are still taking questions, the first segment uh, of the show. We shut it down uh, after first break, and we incorporate them as we go through the show. So do feel free to join the conversation at any of those sites. Uh, email us, uh, please, anytime you like, any show topics. We're getting some interesting uh, things coming in through that strain. And uh, we do our best to get them on the radio for you. And you can subscribe to our podcast. All of our shows are flipped over into podcast form. It's called The Health Hub. You can find it on iTunes, SoundCloud, uh, all of your favorite podcast platforms. And you can also find our podcasts on the Radio Maria Canada website, which is www.radiomaria.ca. And on my website, www.kathybiasse.com. And if you like what you hear, please feel free to leave a comment. Our show from last Tuesday, Aging with Health and Gratitude with Dr. Lori Stevick-Rust is up and ready for you to listen to. This was uh, one of my... Uh, one of my favorite shows to do. I really enjoyed the the subject matter and uh, carrying it along a little bit this week, but in a much different vein. And we'll get to that in a few minutes. But um, I wanted to let you know that over the next three weeks, the shows will be broadcast to you as taped shows. We're taking a little bit of a break here for three weeks and doing a bit of traveling. At least I'm doing a bit of traveling. So uh, no questions to submit. Unfortunately, I apologize for that. But the lineup is going to be stellar. We have uh, what are the shows that are like Biogenesis is coming to you one week. And Why We Sleep is another one. And then Preconception Health. So a great, great lineup. Um, the guests, you know, as we said, we, we, every week we just are so, so honored and proud to have the guests that we, that we have on the show. And those are the three shows that will come into you live. We will have everything up on social media, so um, you won't miss a thing. So we will talk to you at the end of the show about talking to you in October. 
But let's talk about something here at the Health Hub that we want to, uh, you know, at the Health Hub, our job is to try and make you healthier. And so let's look on the sunny side of things for a minute, because looking at the sunny side of things does, in fact, make you healthier, healthier. And we want to make you healthier and we want to make those around you healthier and live a long, happy life. And being an optimist can actually help you be help, health, healthier and live longer. I'm having a hard time. So looking at situations with a glass half full attitude has been linked to many health benefits. For instance, studies have shown that optimism can lead to lower blood pressure. And this has a corollary effect of being very good for your heart. Uh, studies have shown that part of the reason this may be from is because people who are optimists tend to live healthier lifestyles, meaning they pay more attention to diet and exercise. And optimists tend to have a better psychological well-being. And that, my friends, translates into less stress. And, That's always, that's always uh, a great thing. I, you know what? I, we talk about this all the time, Alex. Um, stress to me, the more and more I dig into health, it's always the backbone. Yeah. You know, and I think I believe that, and this is just a belief that has just come clinically, that uh, we all have weaknesses that we're born with. Right. And then this added stress to me just perpetuates any weakness that you might have. So, you know, if you've got a, a propensity, maybe, uh, or genetic disposition, perhaps, uh, for cancer, like I did, mm-hmm. um, you know, stress can play a role in really exacerbating that. And again, this is just my, you know, humble opinion, but eliminating stress is key. It's key for the immune system. So you've got optimism, which lessens stress, which strengthens the immune system. It's all part and parcel of living a healthy, happy life. Yeah, the the key is to remain positive through it all and realize that no matter what you're going through, there is is a positive alternative. And sometimes you have to uh, meet the right people to lead you that way. But the key is to... um, to stay positive as much as you can. It is finding that silver lining and it's very easy to stay optimistic when things are going well. But uh, as I've said, studies have found that if you can be optimistic, you know, when stressors hit, trying to find that person or trying to find a piece of something bright in an otherwise not so happy situation, it does lead to, um, to better health. And optimism again, science has shown, is contagious. So if you are optimistic, that spreads out to your tribe. So not only is it healthy for you personally, it spreads out to those that you love. Right. So many benefits of being an optimist. And um, that, I felt, was a good tie-in to today's show And today's show is for any of us who are getting older. So that pretty much encompasses anybody at all. Year by year, Mm -hmm. day by day, minute by minute, we are aging. And as my dad once said to me, and this is in as optimistic form as I'll phrase this, Mm -hmm. as the minute we are born, we start to die. So we'll spin that a little bit on the show today. But... um, It's a truism, you know, 
every second we're getting older. Right. And the irony is, is that we've built into our culture this negative bias about the aging process. So we have a truism that we will be getting older every breath we take. And yet for some reason we have started to look at that in our culture as being something to fight right? tooth and nail every step of this process. And it is ironic. It is something that um, it's hard not to get caught up in, but it does us no good. It really does us no good at all. Um, And our guest today, Ashton Applewhite, is on a mission to change this. And she's obviously making a headway into it because her immensely popular TED Talk, Let's End Ageism, has had over a million views. So, you know, it seems to be one of those things that, you know, we don't want to be ageist, but we can't get out of that vicious cycle of ageism. Ashton is an author and an activist Uh, She has written the book, This Chair Rocks, A Manifesto Against Ageism. In 2016, she joined PBS site Next Avenue's annual list of 50 influencers in aging as their influencer of the year and Lifetime Arts recently awarded her their 2018 Game Changer Award. Ashton has been recognized by the New York Times, the New Yorker, National Public Radio and the American Society on Aging as an expert on ageism. She blogs at This Chair Rocks, has written for Harper's, Playboy, The New York Times, and is the voice of Yo! Is This Ageist? Ashton speaks widely at venues that have ranged from universities and community centers to the TED main stage at the United Nations. She is a leading spokesperson for a movement to mobilize against discrimination on the bias of age. It will be something to listen to. I'm telling you, I've heard the TED talk. It is captivating. She is captivating. And we will be talking about exactly what is ageism and how ageism has propagated in today's society and how we can change the mindset or at least initiate the changing of the mindset on aging. We will be back in a few minutes to talk with Ashton.
to Radio Maria Canada. We now continue with the program, The Health Hub, hosted by Kathy Biasi. Welcome back, everybody. Our show is live. You can still uh, send in your questions. You can hit us at The Health Hub on Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook. If you'd like to speak with Ashton directly, give us a call at 416-245-1534, and we would be happy to take your calls. Good morning, Ashton. How are you? Good morning. I'm good. I've been looking forward to this. Let me tell you. Thank you. As uh, someone in their 50s approaching their 60s, I think I said in another show, I'm much, much closer to uh, old age than young age. So now's the time to jump on board with this topic. Let me tell you. (laughs) (laughs) It's always a good time. Ageism, ageism affects younger people, too. It affects older people more because we live in such a youth obsessed society but, um, you know, when, when younger people can't find employment, when teenagers can't get no respect, and just the anxiety about getting older affects us all the way across our whole, whole lifespan. Uh, why did you take up the rally cry for this? What, what pushed you in this direction? Well, uh, I have to say I was in my mid-50s. I'm, I'm 66 now. And uh, I, in hindsight, being 2020, I was afraid of getting old. And it started as a project about people over 80 who work, which also in hindsight was this sort of optimistic, upbeat way to think about getting older as though, you know, you could just keep on doing the same stuff you'd always done and didn't have to look at the scary stuff. And uh, what happened was that in about five minutes of research, because I'm sort of a researcher by, by temperament and, and uh by profession, uh, I learned that everything I thought I knew about being that old in your 80s and 90s, even hundreds, uh, was either flat out wrong or way too negative or just way too black and white, that the reality was very nuanced. And I thought, why don't we know this stuff? And the short answer to that is that we live in a culture that frames aging as a disease, so we can be persuaded to buy stuff to cure it, big air quotes around the cure there, or that aging is a problem 
and we should buy stuff to stop it, air quotes there too, you know, or, or fix it. And aging is not a problem or a disease. As you pointed out, it is the process that we embark on the day we're born. It is the universal human experience, and it is this powerful, lifelong process, which we know, because one thing I'm fond of pointing out is no matter how scared people are about getting older, no matter how much they don't want to think about it or don't think of it in a political or social sense, no one wants to be any younger. You know, that's very true. Um, I wouldn't want to go back to my 20s. Right, right. I mean, people, they say, I, you know, you see on their faces, oh, yes, I would. Oh, wait. That, you know, and when they realize, you like, you don't just get to swap out, you know, the crow's feet or the um, curtilage-free knees, that you would have to <laughs> literally erase the years between now and whenever we know that aging enriches us. We know that we are the product of all every all the things we have lived and done. And frankly, another thing we forget is that, you know, tend to lose sight of is being young is hard. My 20s were tough, mm-hmm. you know, it's and not to mention adolescence. You know, I don't think anyone wants to go through those years again. I think if I could pick an age, it's, it's probably an age that I don't remember. And it, just by looking at babies and toddlers, I think I might want to be that. I don't remember it. But uh, you're right. <laughs> All the other stuff in the middle is just a process of getting to where you want to be. Exactly. Exactly. You know, and we and so I, I think that's one reason my work is finding, you know, resonance is that it taps into these these facts that are very close to the surface, but that we haven't really, um, you know, no one's made us think about them yet. Now, are you able to reach the young people? Uh, is this just, you know, obviously, like I said, for those of us, uh, I guess the demarcation mark is 50. Um, for those of us that are slightly north or north-north of 50, this is an important thing. You know, I don't want to be embarrassed to say how old I am. Honestly, there are situations where I don't want to say I'm 50. Um, uh-huh. You know, there are times I look at my kids and I think, wow, that's that's the life, man. And then I think, well, maybe it's not. <laughs> Um, but no. it, it's it's hard not to get caught up on this this what would you call it? like a wheel uh, with a rat wheel I, they I, spin on. I, I call it the hamster wheel. Hamster the wheel. Hamster wheel of of age denial. Ageism. <clears throat> I mean, ageism is any um, is prejudice or stereotyping on the basis of age. Where ageist any time we make an assumption about someone or a group of people on the basis of how old we think they are. And whether it's that, you know, kids are like that or that that old person, older person couldn't possibly learn to work that device or um, be a sexual person, you know, or be in the world or be listening to the same thing that a 25 year old might be listening to or interested in the same, you know, books um, that, that there's uh, some some, you know, homogeneity, all all stere- all prejudice is based in stereotyping. And of course, stereotypes are always wrong because how could anything be true of an entire group of people? But especially when it comes to age, because the longer we live, the more different from one another we become. Uh, the more we age at different rates physically, cognitively, and socially. So the older someone is, the less their age says about them. You know, Giving your age is tricky because I think it's important to say how old we are because the only, if we don't say how old we are, people assume we're embarrassed or ashamed of it. So that reinforces this crazy idea that we should be ashamed of getting older. Think how nutty that is just on its surface. 
But at the same time, if we, you know, if we don't give our age, then we don't challenge the notion collectively that there's some way that someone 50 years old looks and behaves and what they do for a living, right? Mm-hmm. Only in our diversity and by outing ourselves as older, do we represent ourselves, you know, as the incredibly diverse group. Of course, we are. You must be really, um, you know, when I think of technology and how fast it's changing and how how difficult this is on some older people that have had to necessarily figure out a phone or a bank and remember their passwords. And, you know, that that feeds into, you know, when you get the look from a younger person who this has come from naturally, you know, they're brought up with it. They and, and they look at you with two heads because, like, you don't understand these things that that perpetuates a negative effect. And that must have. Uh, and overall, it, it must make people feel negative themselves, and they internalize these things that people thrust upon them. Well, in, internalized ageism is indeed the first big hurdle we need to get over. And it's hard. We grow up in a culture that bombards us, starting with children's books, right? And, and you know, Grandpa Simpson and the children's books in which older people are either sort of cranky, cranky old people or sort of placid grannies, both of which are stereotypes. Even a positive stereotype is a stereotype, Mm -hmm. right? So we, those, unless we stop to question those images, they become part of our self-image and they become self-reinforcing. You talked about how, you know, people who, who are optimistic, who expect to live long, take better care of themselves. If you anticipate that because you are older, you are going to lose your marbles and not be able to work anything, you know, the new doodad that your daughter gave you for Christmas, then we bring that anxiety and lack of confidence to the task. The fact is that kids, too, are overwhelmed by the rate of technological change. Uh, You know, I had to, if, if you think about it, yes, the Internet and the digital revolution has been a profound revolution in our lifetime. But there are families right now with 15-year-olds who are using different technologies than their 10-year-old siblings Mm -hmm. and their 20-year-old siblings, Mm right? No one can keep up with the pace of change. And, you know, we, we had to adapt from, you know, horse and plow to tractors to tractors today that are supercomputers. So it is not as though the process of having to adapt to stuff is a new one. I think what we have to call into question is exactly what what you did. You know, the idea that, oh, because I am older, I'll never get the hang of this darn thing. If you need to get the hang of it, you'll get the hang of it. Mm -hmm. And there's nothing wrong with... It's important for your daily life. Yeah, and there's nothing wrong with not getting the hang of it. But in fact, I think, you know, uh, uh, so my parents' generation and then our generation, I think, I was having a conversation with somebody, I think we may be one of the smartest and most adaptive of any generation we have been bombarded with change far more than any other generation that I can think of. And I went through, uh, you know, thinking about the show and everything. We mm-hmm. have had to change so much. And most of us have had that ability to adapt. So I think that's kudos for us, if, if I say anything. I agree. And of course, it is precisely having to learn those new things 
that builds um, what what scientists call cognitive reserve, right. which is just more synapses and the connections between them. And we're pretty sure that that confers protection against dementia. If you are using your brain to do something taxing and challenging, you are keeping your mind active. And that's a really important thing to our health and well-being. But there's nothing wrong with a 70-year-old not grasping this. And that's another, that's the turnabout. Um, we, I don't understand everything. Do you understand everything that's presented to you? It's oh, just, yeah, everything. Uh, yeah, oh, exactly. Yeah. So, oh, yeah, no problem. You know, it's, I mean, it's I, I, nothing I, wrong with it. it. True. And I think it's really important to make the point that there is no right way to age. There is a tremendous amount out in the world especially in the U.S., which is so consumer-driven about successful aging and positive aging, where there are these images of, you know, people, um, you know, incredibly fit and jumping out of airplanes and, um, you know, leading these active lifestyles. More power to them, but let's not forget that not everyone is lucky enough or wealthy enough to live that way, and that a lot of that message is actually deeply ageist as well. The successful aging model really means to not age, right? There's you. I mean, if you think about it, we, we believe, of course, that it's incredibly important to adapt and learn and grow as we move through life, and yet somewhere north of middle age, wherever that is these days, the goal becomes, if you subscribe to that successful aging model, to stop the clock, Right? And to keep doing all the things you always did or some version of them. And we all have those things we want to keep doing. We're all going to work to maintain the things that are most important to us. But it's really important not to fall into the trap that we can or should stop the clock. It's not desirable. It's not possible. It has a huge class bias because it's expensive. And it pits us against each other and it sets us up to fail. So we need to acknowledge the fact that we are aging, that there is no right or wrong way, successful or unsuccessful way to age and do it in our own way and in our own, at our own speed. Now, do you think from your research that this is in a North American or um, North American European cultivated thing or is, is it perpetuated by industry or is this just something that's natural? Ageism has always been with us in that um, that we, you know, if, if the barbarians were at the gate and you had to leave town, uh, the people who are the slowest, you know, the, the, which, or, the, or the most frail, are going to be left behind. You're not going to be able to bring the babies and the very old people. In that sense, there's some biological determinism to it. But we live in a world now where unless you're very unlucky, the barbarians are not at the gates where we know how to transport and take care of the the more vulnerable members of society. The trends that have accelerated ageism are industrialization because, uh, you know, and urbanization because the the, the um, we we tend to value capitalism propelling all of that. We take a very capitalist society, which is certainly true of the United States and much of the West, tends to value people in terms of their conventional economic productivity, which leaves the very young and the very old out typically. When in fact, of course, older people contribute to the economy in countless harder to measure ways. Even if I'm retired. But I watch my grandchild so her parents can go to work 
I am contributing financially, right? So urbanization is a problem, and so is capitalism. And those are, of course, global trends. Where people live in smaller communities where all ages mingle, there is less ageism because you are exposed to all ages, just as there's less racism if you're exposed to people of different races than you. And also, of course, then you see around you that each person at every age has a role that you don't age out of. You remain a valued member of society and your family. And that's uh, we're going to end this segment with that, because I do want to touch back on that. I've read many studies about um, uh, the value that we put on aging people, and that varies greatly from culture to culture. Um, So we will be back in a few minutes to continue our conversation with Ashton. Welcome back, everybody. We're here with Ashton Applewhite. We're having a fascinating conversation on the topic of ageism. Ashton, when we, we left off, we, we sort of hit that area of valuing our elderly. And I, th- I think um, from what I've read, and I'm sure you've got a lot to say about this, if at a young age we value our older uh, family members and look to them for their wisdom and their experience, 
the elderly people necessarily have a place in society. Why don't we do that in the Western world? Well, uh, I think it's not that we don't do it everywhere. Of course, if you look at people who go into geriatrics and gerontology, they're almost always people who were raised by older people or grew up with a grandparent in the family or close to a grandmother. So that is still the case with many families. The pattern of, you know, many, many, um, you know, Americans now live alone. We don't live with our extended family and we live um, more in cities than small communities where you can have contact with all ages. Um, But I'm happy to say that there is a massive trend uh, coming from all over the place, not just from anti-ageism interests, towards intergenerational collaboration on the job, about um, mentoring and reverse mentoring, um, it, tons of intergenerational housing initiatives. I'm working with a group of age activists around um, the idea of a new generational compact. How can the generations work together? I mean, it's it's really obvious that we're going to, you know, the world faces a lot of serious problems, and we're only going to solve those problems if we work together at all ages. So I see a really, um, really positive movement um, towards involving all the generations, a reverse trend, I'm happy to say. Who do you think is responsible for changing this trend? Is it us as we're getting older? Is it, uh, you know, <laughs> everybody, 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 I mean, you asked, you know, you asked if this was a message that would also appeal to younger people. Um, the fact is that ageism does affect everyone. I see, of course, it's, you know, inherently dopey to say X, Y, Z is true of an entire generation, but I'm about to do just that by saying that I think the millennial generation and the, and the ones that follow know that we're going to live in a more diverse world. And I think they think that diversity is a good thing, which I certainly do. And to say to them, you know, when I ask people what they think of as criteria for diversity, people say race and gender and, you know, ability, maybe they don't usually say age. But when I say age, how about age? No one says that's a dumb idea. They totally get intuitively that age, because it's something we cannot change about ourselves, should be a criterion for diversity. So I think that a that and that it, the idea that a world should be age integrated as well as racially and economically integrated is much closer to the surface, if you will, for younger people than say the idea seventy years ago that a woman could run a Fortune five hundred company as mm-hmm. well as a man. And I think that was a hard idea for women to get behind as well, right? Whereas I think the idea that we all need to, you know, to work together, this idea of, of uh, you know, intersectionality. I don't, are you familiar with that term? No. It, it came out of the black women's, uh, black feminists coined it in the 1970s, a woman named Kimberly Crenshaw, to reflect the fact that the women's movement was largely white women who weren't addressing the additional issues faced by women of color. Mm -hmm. And intersectionality is the idea, it's an ugly word, but an interesting idea, that different forms of oppression intersect and reinforce each other. As a woman, I face obstacles in the um, workforce, for example, that a man might not, but as a white woman, I have faced fewer obstacles than a black woman, who in turn 
um, doesn't face the hurdles faced by, you know, someone with a disability, perhaps, so that these all these conditions intersect. I think that idea and terminology is more accessible, I think, to younger people. I think they grew up with it. So I think that a world of age equity is just, if you want, um, th- you know, think in terms of, of the gay marriage movement, the idea that marriage should be available to everyone in society from a broad social justice perspective that no one wants to face discrimination on the basis of age, I think is going to be adopted faster and more intuitively than um, earlier political struggles. I'm I hope so. About it. Because, yeah, me too. you know, you think, you know, our idea of getting older is losing our marbles. It's not being able to keep up. But I just don't think that that, you know, there are things that were going to happen neurologically. I know the brain shrinks, whether or not changes what we can do or modifies or turns us into something that we can do better than we could before. It shouldn't matter. We should metamorphosize as we get older. And the value to me of being wise and having experience is not is not recognized. I mean, it's just well, I mean, I often say, you know, I'm I'm not a Pollyanna about aging, but there are only and and so my quest is not to paint it all optimistic, happy, happy, so which is sort of what the successful aging portrait does. You know, if you eat enough kale, everything's going to be great. Mm-hmm. Maybe everything's going to be great if you're lucky. Um, you know, 20% of people escape cognitive decline entirely. Think about it. We all know some of those really sharp 90 year olds. Maybe you'll fall into that group. Maybe you won't. Right. But the idea, it's important to tell both sides of the story and to acknowledge that the, the, that, the, that the current conversation drowns out all but the negative. And yet we all know, back to the point, you know, no one wants to be any younger. We know at the same time that being, getting older conveys experience, which enriches us, right? And so, so um, you know, if you think about, well, I, I'm happy to talk about brain health in um in greater detail because that that is i mean there are ways in which the way aging affects the healthy brain confers enormous benefits let's talk about that too alzheimer's dementia is not typical of aging you know if you forget what's where something is younger people forget things too all the time and it doesn't keep the vast 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 majority of us from being able to find our slippers sooner or later (laughs) and continuing to enjoy our lives and being you know valued members of our communities. In reflecting upon what our conversation would be today, you know, some of the the greatest conversations I have around the dinner table are with my 90-year-old father-in-law. And his, I can't remember what I did yesterday. He is an immigrant from Italy. He remembers dates. He remembers events. He remembers places. And his enriched, enriched life is fascinating to me. And I'm wondering if it's a lack of conversation or maybe by creating more conversation, we can help dispel some of these myths because there must be myths that you thought going into your study were true. Oh my gosh, yes. And then you walked out of saying, wow, I had that wrong. Maybe you could talk oh, about I some of those. how many. Sure. Well, because if you had them, we obviously do. Right. Well, I, I mean, I started out utterly ignorant and profoundly skeptical. I mean, I thought, for example, that the odds of ending up in a nursing home were pretty darn good. And it turns out, I don't know what the statistic is for Canada, but I believe it's even lower because I I checked into that about a year ago. 
the percentage of Americans over 65 in nursing homes is 2.5%, down from four in the decade I've been working on this. I would have guessed it was 20 or 30%. People often guess even higher. I, I thought, well, obviously everything about being really old is awful, and one of the things that must make it awful is that the Grim Reaper gets, I literally envisioned like the shadow of the, you know, the guy with the sickle looming over your bed and, you know, the shadow <laughs> getting closer and longer. It turns out that the longer people live, the less they fear dying. They don't want to die and they don't want to die in pain, especially, but they don't, they are preoccupied by it. And they say to younger people, don't worry so much, you know, and don't worry about dying. So that was another, I mean, and I, I mean, more and more and more. I, when I first encountered the U-curve of happiness, which I, I mean, people say that can't be so. Google it. U-curve of happiness. It is the fact that everywhere around the world, independent of, uh, that, that people are happiest at the beginnings and the ends of life, right? So that's the curve. And then I thought, oh, well, that must be so if you're wealthy or if you're healthy or if you're not alone. It is true from Australia to Zanzibar. It is true independent of health. It is true independent of wealth, and the curve is a function of the way aging itself affects the brain. We not only become less um, anxious about stuff like dying because you because the knowledge that time is short does not fill people with dread, which was just an ageist assumption I started out with. It helps us spend the time more wisely, right? The awareness that time is short. Kids live in the moment because they're, they don't know how to do anything else. And very old people do it because they know that time is short. We also get better at modulating negative emotions like anxiety and envy. And we get better, you know, at not sweating the small stuff, at taking the long view, at drawing on our experience. And that makes us better able to deal with life and happier. Well, I'm wondering, too, at that age, you've seen a lot of the milestones you hope you be your you're around to see. Um, when I got diagnosed with cancer seven years ago, what went through my yeah, mind was, will I see my children get married? Will I see yeah. grandchildren? Will I see them graduate? And I think we set markers. I could be wrong about this, but I think you know, I did. I'll do it my way because I am I know what I felt. I set markers of you know how I'd like to see my life progress and things that I'd like to see. And it was greatly called into question when I got that diagnosis. So perhaps if somebody has lived to the age of 70 or 80, they've seen what they, you know, those thresholds of accomplishments. And then there is that sense of, you know, and now let's let, let life take it me where it will. And um, yeah, yeah. not that everyone wants, I mean, not, not that I'm saying that there, people are ready to die, but I right, think and it's not that we relinquish all control. I mean, the, there's, there's, you know, a, a a corollary of the U-curve of happiness is, of course, the midlife trough, the, the midlife crisis or whatever, which is, I think, a, a part, part of that is a function of the fact that that's when not only are we the most taxed with responsibility for our children, we're supposed to be at the peak of our careers, our parents may re be requiring more and more care and so on. So you have all these responsibilities. And it's also when you realize, you know, gee, I might not be an astronaut. I might not run that marathon. I might not, you know, write that great American novel. So it is a period of reckoning. And I think as we climb out of the trough, we 
get better at doing just what you're saying, sort of measuring mileposts, taking, you know, appreciating what we have accomplished and trying to, um, you know, have a, have a sensible, balanced view of what might lie ahead. So what are you doing now? Um, you're, you're speaking, <laughs> you're involved in a bunch of things. I want to get to your book. Um, um, where are you? Well, when I turned, I had a halftime job, a wonderful job, writing for the Museum of Natural History here in New York. But when I turned 65, not this summer, but last summer, I got on Medicare because imagine, like you lucky Canadians have had your whole life, um, affordable health care. Um, and there's a whole section in my book about the benefits that older Canadians have uh, reek from a lifetime of good health care, which is one piece of data I use to debunk the myth that all these older people are going to swamp the health care system because it is not true. Um, population health care costs are not rising in percentage in proportion to the number of older people in the population, which is rising quite fast. So, um I quit my job and became a full-time activist. I wrote this book about three years ago, and I self-published it. And I'm happy to say that I sold the rights to the same book, a little uh, updated and revised, which will be brought out by a new division of Macmillan uh, in March. So I hope I'll be um, running around on a book tour. Congratulations. uh, Thank you. And I've been, um, you know, building... My website, I just, the the latest thing I did, it sounds super sexy, I know, is that I just launched two weeks ago something called um, Old School, which is a, a, a clearinghouse of free anti-ageism resources because movements need tools. The very, I would, if I had to pick the most important tool there, it is a, and it's as free and downloadable, also, and you can also get to it on my website, um, a guide to starting a consciousness raising group around age bias. Consci- and it's called Who Me? Ageist, because of course we're all ageist and we can't confront bias unless we're aware of it. So the very first step in any movement in changing the culture in the biggest change that you and I hope to see is looking at yourself and instead of getting defensive, which is of course natural and human, like, oh, I'm not prejudiced, to look for evidence of the ways in which you are ageist And because consciousness raising is the tool that catalyzed the women's movement, women came together in groups and compared notes and realized that the problems that they were experienced, whether it wasn't, you know, getting promoted or not being able to, you know, equal pay or being respected in their marriage or in the world were in fact, not personal problems, but widely shared political problems, which is hugely liberating once you see that that required collective action. And that's where we need to get around aging. That if you can't, you know, get someone to look at your job resume, even though you have, you know, 25 years of fantastic experience and are being told that your experience is the reason you're not qualified for the job, which is kind of crazy making, mm-hmm. um, you know, that that is a collective problem. It's a function of, of age discrimination in the workplace. It's not your fault. If you look at your face and it doesn't look the way it did when you were 22, that's not a personal failing or a problem. It's because your face is the map of your life. You know, we need to, we need to look more generously at each other and ourselves. Wrinkles are the map of our lives. And it is a radical act to look at each other differently, but it's really important and we need to embark on it together because the people telling us that wrinkles are ugly 
are the multi-billion dollar skincare industry. Mm-hmm. And, you know, capitalism and patriarchy and all those things that want women in particular and people whose bodies and whose faces and whose colors do not conform to this skinny, white, blonde, heteronormative norm to feel bad about ourselves and to allow ourselves to be exploited and to spend a lot of money fixing things that we cannot fix, that shouldn't we shouldn't feel we have to fix, and that are a source of shame about something that should not be shameful. You know, I'm not going to ask the question, is there a difference between men and women when we're talking about targeting? Because that's, to me, an obvious one. Women uh, are, are burdened far more with the aging process. Well, what well that's I am- intersectionality. That's yeah. the intersection of ageism and sexism. But what I wanted to ask you was, why are men's outlook so much more positive about aging from what I see? I mean, it's... Well, go ahead, I think it, it depends on the age. Um, ageism is often the first form of discrimination that white men encounter. So I am looking for a lot of those guys to be radicalized, the ones who are brave enough to say, whoa, you know, wow, maybe part of where I got in this world is not because I was such a genius, but because I was privileged by my gender and my skin color. Fit the profile. Uh, And now, you know, and welcome to our world. Um, Women face the double whammy of ageism and sexism in the dating world, in their social life, and very much so in the professional world. Economists have a charming term for this. They call it the attractiveness penalty. And lest we think that this is a problem just for older women, this stuff kicks in in your 30s. Women stop being promoted to managerial positions in their early 30s because they might, might, might want to have a baby. And we all know that the minute you have a baby, you become utterly incompetent and stop showing up for work. Not. So that double intersection does affect women much more than men. When, when mothers become, when women become mothers, their pay goes down. When men become fathers, their pay goes up. So there is all kind of structural discrimination around sexism in the workplace. But men, I have to say, suffer more, I think, from the fact if they are unable to find work because of their age, because age is even more of a repository for identity and meaning and purpose in a patriarchal society than it is for women who tend to have stronger social bonds and other things to draw on for meaning and support. So again, ageism bites all of us sooner or later, and men do not escape it. Hmm. I was thinking when I asked the question, I didn't think of those things, but when I was asking the question, you know, I've, I've had four kids and as they're getting married off, I'm, you know, I'm sad Whereas my yeah. husband is kicking up his heels saying, whoo, it's our time. <laughs> so, I, you know, I, I think that I, I wish I had that outlook. I guess it's where you're demarcating your successes. It is, you know, and you could you could say, well, if, uh, you know, there's there's always a double standard. You know, if you're I mean, I'm, I'm making I'm not making this argument seriously. I'm making it to play devil's advocate a little bit. But, you know, if you are a woman and only the only thing in quotes you've been able to achieve is raise four responsible adults, which is, of course, a tremendous, fantastic achievement that arguably is more of a source of support and satisfaction to a woman who is supposed to, according to, you know, a patriarchal sexist society, find more meaning in that than her husband, who is supposed to go out and achieve professionally in order to conform to sort of patriarchal norms. 
so, you know, that is one way in which the double standard, um, you could say, benefits women. I would like to live in a world where there is no double standard. Men and women share family responsibilities equally and have equal access to the career ladder and equal pay. Mm -hmm. Okay, so we're pushing up against the clock. I want to make sure that I get everything out of yours before I ask you. uh, Good luck. uh, Before I ask (laughs) you the question of uh, how we start this rally cry. So the social sites for you, thischairrocks.com. Your Twitter handle is thischairrocks. Your Facebook Mm -hmm. is thischairrocks. And Mm -hmm. your Instagram is thischairrocks. So very simple. Look for This Chair Rocks. Your book is available, I'm assuming, on Amazon, anywhere online. Uh, it's actually, it's not available on Amazon now because uh, it is, now, it is, we're now in the six-month period before Celadon, my new publisher, brings it out. But you can order it. You can contact me um, and sign up for my email at the bottom of my main webpage, there's a contact me page. I will not give it away. I will not spam you. And I do not get it together to send out an email more than four or five <laughs> times a year. So you'll be safe from harassment. Um, and there's tons and tons and tons of information on my blog, which is this chairrocks.com slash blog. I have it searchable by topic. And I know this is a health oriented podcast. If you enter health or public health, You'll see tons of um, information there, like stuff about a new study out of Yale that shows that positive attitudes towards aging confer protection against dementia, even in people with the gene that predisposes you to Alzheimer's. So if you want to know more about health in particular or any other aspect, you can find it there. It's free. You can download the Consciousness Raising Guide for free. Um, you can order a print copy of my book, I believe, um, or you can hold out till, uh, till March when the new edition comes out. Um, there's also YoIsThisAgist.com, which is a Q&A blog modeled on this fantastic blog called Yo Is This Racist, um, where you can ask me if something you've seen or done or encountered is ageist, because this is a new idea for a lot of people, and it's not always obvious, and I try and be witty and I try and give what I think is the right answer because it's not easy. Odds are if it's a comment or something, you know, if, if the if it were a comment made on the basis of, of race or of gender, uh, that wouldn't pass muster. If it's on the basis of age, it's probably ageist and it's not okay. Okay. Well your TED talk, which is fantastic, is called Let's End Ageism. Your book is called This Chair Rocks a Manifesto Against Ageism and we're running out of time here, but what is your rally cry? What do you want everyone to be shouting as they're running through the streets? Uh, I would like, wow, that's a tough one. And I know I should come up with a zippy answer. I would like to see people of all ages running through the streets, holding each other, helping each other. I'd like to see people in wheelchairs. I'd like to see people in walkers. I'd like them to be of all ages, too. I would like a movement to embrace everyone who wakes up a day older and who doesn't want their age to be held against them, whether they are considered, you know, too young to know what they're doing or too old to learn new tricks. We are all in this together. It's often framed as old versus young when, in fact, the society that is good to grow old in is a great society to be young in as well, to to have a disability, to be a woman, to be queer. Let's build a better society for all of us at all ages. Awesome. So age pride. 
Age pride, Age baby. Pride. And let, let's Age end pride, it there. Baby. Ashton, it's been a wonderful conversation. I really appreciate uh, what you're doing and you taking the time. Uh, everybody, we will talk to you in three weeks. I will be away for the next three weeks. Enjoy the shows. And we will talk to you in October on The Health Hub. Hosted by Kathy Biasi, here on Radio Maria Canada.